Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning because you drew us. You drew us through the sacrifice of your Son and your irresistible grace. Jesus, we come this morning in your name, based on your merits and your completed work and your willingness to become our substitute. We come this morning as forgiven sinners to a great and a good God who we do not deserve to come to this morning, but we are here because you drew us by your grace. We thank you for that this morning. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for each person here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the promises that are ours because of your sacrifice and your life. I pray this morning that I can honor you in the reading of your word and in the explaining of your word. Jesus, I am honored to speak today for you, and I don't want to speak in any way that would shame you. I want to exalt you. I want the church to see you in your glory. I want, they, I want them to see your, your grace and your goodness and your authority, as is revealed in Mark's gospel this morning. Be glorified, I pray today. Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Today, we are going to be returning to Capernaum with Jesus in Mark chapter 2. We're going to return to Capernaum to see his authority and his mercy displayed through forgiveness. So please open God's word with me to Mark chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12, and we will focus our attention this morning on verses 1 through 5 primarily this morning, and look at the other few passages next week, Lord willing. Hear the word of the Lord in Mark 2, the gospel of Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And there were gathered, I'm sorry, verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that 
they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. I find it interesting. In verse 10, Jesus says to the skeptics and the religious, This is going to be done so that you will know who the Son of Man is and that He has authority. Because the paralytic already knew it. The paralytic had already been declared righteous by Jesus. He knew that Jesus had authority. He knew that Jesus also had mercy. And those two were combined in this passage. When he speaks with authority to forgive a sinner as God alone can do. And then when he says to confirm that he is God. Sinner, now that you've been forgiven, let's prove it to these unbelieving religious people. Rise. Walk. Go and show that I have all authority. Jesus displays this beautifully here as he combines these two things. And what's interesting to me is what I, what I see in this text is I see the irresistible grace of God at work. Today we see here in this text the irresistible Jesus drawing the immovable sinner to newness of life and health. We see that in verses 1 through 5. We see that in verses 1 through 5 when, number one, when Jesus is present... He draws sinners to himself through his preaching and his power. And number two, in verses three and four, we see that when faith is present, sinners are drawn to Christ through faith. And number three, when grace is present, Jesus draws sinners to forgiveness. Now, let me give you just a little bit of review and background so we, we understand where we're at in this text. So let me back up just a little bit to chapter 1, verse 35, so you can understand the context in which this is set. We're going to back up here to where they are at Peter's house. And this is where, actually, chapter 2 begins. It's back at Peter's home, which was Jesus' home base. And here in 35, it speaks about what Jesus was doing there. Previous to this, he was healing many people in this region. And then in verse 35, he says, He rises early, very early in the morning, while it was still dark. And he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So that's what Jesus begins to do. He he goes on this tour, if you will, of these other regions, and he preaches. And verse 39 says, And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And his testimony and his fame spread, starting there where he had began at Peter's home. And then in verse 40, it even picks up on what all he did. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus, it says, stretched out his hand and touched the unclean leper. He touched him and said to him, I will be clean. The willingness of Jesus here is just phenomenal. And he reaches out and heals this man. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Again, the leper understood he'd been cleansed. But Jesus wanted to make sure that the establishment understood that he was following all of God's commands, so he sends him forth. But this leper, who was rejoicing over his newfound cleanliness, 
couldn't contain himself. He says in verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And then he ends up coming back to Capernaum in chapter 2. And he settles into this house. And once the news gets spread that Jesus is back in town, the healer is back in town, the crowds begin to come and they begin to flock Peter's house. They begin to press in on Peter's home once again. And again, just imagine this. All they really know is about Jesus is that he is a great healer. He has not yet revealed that he is a great savior yet. He has not forgiven anyone of anything yet that we know of. He's revealed, though, that he is the one who has authority over life, over health. And these people are amazed by him. But again, just go back and think about that last chapter, what it would have sounded like, what it would have smelt like, what it would have looked like when these defiled wretches came flooding to Peter's house, pressing in because they were drawn to Jesus. His very presence drew people. His very presence attracted sinners. Unlike the religious, Jesus was at home with the defiled. He didn't mind to be there with them. Matter of fact, everywhere he went, they were drawn to him because they knew he had authority, but they also knew there was something about him that reflected mercy. They hadn't seen that in Israel. And what we see in Mark, verses 1 and 2, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we see that there is this irresistible draw that Jesus has. We see the irresistible draw the immovable here. Whenever Jesus is present, he draws sinners to himself. But notice this. He is not satisfied with them coming to him for healing. He draws sinners to himself by preaching. That was his primary reason for going out and for coming back. He had not compromised anything. He came preaching, and he was drawing sinners even when he was preaching. Now, not all these sinners believed in him, and we'll see that throughout the rest of the Gospels. But nonetheless, he is drawing them by his presence and by his proclamation and by his power that is there present with him. Look what it says in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So this couldn't be kept secret. Jesus is back in town. You remember the one who who actually we heard about touching the leper and healing him? The one that no one would be around? Jesus actually pursued him? Oh, wow, let's go see this Jesus. So there there was an element of people coming here out of triviality. There was an element of people coming here out of desperation. And there was also an element here of people coming to him out of true faith. Trust that this one had the power to make sinners clean. Because they related leprosy with sin. They looked at that as something that could not be cured apart from some kind of miraculous intervention. And so they're interested. They're coming to him. That doesn't necessarily mean it's saving faith that's drawing them, but it is Jesus that is drawing them by his grace, by his very presence. Could you imagine if Jesus was here this morning? How you should be drawn to him? How you would want to be near him? I'll submit to you, he is here this morning. He's here in the preaching of his word. He is here in the revelation of who he is in this text. And you should be drawn to him this morning. You should be amazed by him this morning. That he is here presently addressing you in scripture. Verse 2 says, And many were gathered together so that 
there was no more room. Not even at the door. They're all around the house. They're lining up. They're pushing in. They're inside. There's this niche that Jesus is setting in that he's teaching from. And they're all around in the floor, on the walls, wherever they can climb and and be a part of this gathering. There was no room even at the door. And it says he was preaching the word to them. I mean, this is, this is amazing. When Jesus is preaching, he is magnetic. People are being drawn to him. Listen, unbelievers are drawn to the preaching of Jesus. It may not be in the same way we are drawn as believers, but they are amazed by the truth about Jesus, though it confronts them. Though they rebel against it, they can't ignore it. It is eternal truth that is addressing them. It is the eternal one, Jesus Christ, that is coming in there and pounding on their hearts, and they cannot ignore the sovereign one. They hear him, though they reject him, but they can't ignore him. He's magnetic to all of us. He is our creator. He has put something in all of us that draws us to himself to some degree. Even in natural creation, we recognize there is this great creator, and we're amazed by it. We're amazed by his design. But in verse 2, we see that the irresistible Christ draws immovable sinners through his word and his power. He, he preached, it says there. Now, the, the word for preaching up to this point in Mark has been the word caruso. Caruso was used for public proclamation, loud preaching, declaring in the streets like Jonah did. This is not the word that's used here when he's in this home. The word here is laleo. Laleo. It describes the tone and the manner of his preaching. It was still powerful, because we'll see that in a moment in Luke, but it was also personal. This was the kind of teaching that was tender. This was the kind of teaching that was personal, that was addressing individuals and explaining the heart problems that they have and explaining what God's solution is in his word. Jesus was preaching about the kingdom of God coming into the world to pursue the lost and the weak and the dying. He's preaching about what they need to hear most. He's preaching that God intervenes for sinners and he forgives. He does that through a sacrifice that he would provide. Jesus preached with power according to what it says in Luke. Look what Luke 5 says. His preaching was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Luke 5, 17 through 20 speaks about the same account that we're reading about here in Mark. He preached with power according to this text. It says, On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Notice that. His preaching came with power. Power to heal. He was the healer. Those healings displayed his authority. That's why he's doing these things. And his power and his preaching testified to these things. In verse 18 it says, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they're speaking truth there. Their thinking is not right. Only God can forgive sins, and Jesus was displaying that here. He was testifying to that here. He was testifying to his authority, and he was doing it with great mercy, the mercy of forgiveness. He's reaching out, and he's preaching, and he's healing, and he's doing these things to draw people to see his authority and his mercy, the very thing that he preached about when he spoke about the kingdom of God coming. Now, when he did this, whenever Jesus preached, you can't find anywhere in Scripture when Jesus preached that people weren't drawn. There were crowds, large crowds of people came to Jesus whenever he spoke, but it didn't always mean they were all believers. But again, they were all compelled to come to him. He was irresistible to men. Now, on one level, he was irresistible because they were simply saying, we need someone who can fix us. And they saw in Jesus the great fixer, the one who could heal, the one who could feed, the one who could take care of their personal needs. And so they came to him in flocks sometimes. And so that tells us one thing about numbers. They don't always mean what you think. Sometimes they mean people are coming for wrong reasons. But nonetheless, they saw something powerful in Jesus that was a reality that they were drawn to. We can see that in John 6. John 6, 1. John 6, 1 says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd, a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Church, that's common grace Jesus is extending. This is a great picture of his authority over nature and his mercy for sinners. Look what it says. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, when they had filled up, it says, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world Perceiving that then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself to the mountain by himself. They were trying to get the king without the crown, without the crown of the cross. Jesus knew that the cross had to come before this crown. The cross was why he came. That was what would crown his ministry. They wanted a Messiah who would feed them, give them a social program. 
Jesus says, you're coming for the wrong reasons. You can even see that further in chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and Jesus, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten, eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They're seeking. They're just seeking with wrong motives. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Amin, Amin. Let it be, let it be. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. See, Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Though they had professed, He's the great prophet. He knew what was going on internally. What was drawing them there was not faith. Not faith in His authority, but faith in His gift-giving, trusting that he would provide for them temporarily. And Jesus says, I've got something to give you that will endure forever, eternal life, and I will give it to you. So when we come back to Mark, we see that kind of crowd gathered at Peter's house. In Mark 2, 3 through 4, it tells us that some of these people were, were drawn here simply because they saw the signs, but they really wanted the stuff. They wanted the healing, They wanted the personal comfort. But within that crowd, praise be to God, there were some that God was drawing in a special way, in a particular way. Here in verses 3 and 4, we're told that some were being drawn to God, or by God, rather, to Jesus through faith for the sake of their friend and to make Jesus' authority and mercy known. See, these men, these four carrying the paralytic, they had no idea what was drawing them so powerfully to pursue Jesus for their friend. Where did this compassion and this commitment and this confidence come from? All they knew is, we trust in this one who can heal, so we're going to take him there. But God had a bigger plan than that going on here. It wasn't just for the paralytic. This healing and this forgiveness was for Jesus. It testified to who he was. Even this illness was ordained by God to glorify Jesus. That's what these men are being drawn to do. In verses 3 and 4, the irresistible Christ draws the immovable when, number two, faith is present. When there is real faith, a desire to believe in Jesus. Now, they only had a certain amount of knowledge about this Jesus. But these five men, including the paralytic, they believed that Jesus could do the miraculous. They truly believed this. These five sinners are drawn to Christ through faith. It's by grace, through faith. And they're drawn to Him. Look what it says in verse 3. And they came, bringing to Him a paralytic, carried by four men. Now this would not have been an easy task. 
Just imagine anyone in here. Even imagine the smallest adult in here. If you had to carry this person all across town on a mat, on a sheet with each corner at your hip, there was a certain amount of commitment that was driving these men. There was a certain amount of confidence that when they got to Jesus, he would take care of this man. And there was a certain amount of sacrifice involved. These men gave up their time to do this. And I believe that Jesus makes it clear that there was true faith in their hearts. Not saving faith in those men, but there was true faith. There was confidence in Jesus that drew them there. Verse 4 says, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. What we see going on here is this irresistible draw of Jesus. It's, it's drawing sinners through faith to become his own instruments. These four men become the instruments of God. They came bringing to him a paralytic. Jesus intended that to happen. He intended this man to come so he could forgive him, so he could testify to his own authority and his mercy to the Pharisees who were there to spy on him. Understand this. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, understand this. God uses means to accomplish his divine work. The paralytic needed forgiveness. And God allowed a physical need to be the instrument and the men that were his friends to bring him to Jesus. These men believed that Jesus could do what they couldn't do. These men believed that Jesus would do what no one else would do. For their friend. They believed in him in that degree. Faith in Jesus, you can write these three things down. Faith in Jesus made these men, number one, compassionate. These men must have loved this man on the cot. Faith in Jesus made them compassionate toward this man, carrying him through the crowd, is what it says in verse 3. Have you ever tried to get through a crowd with yourself or maybe carrying a baby? It's no fun. But these men loved this friend, this man, so much that they were willing to sacrifice and and do whatever it took to be able to help this man. They were showing him love and compassion. Imagine this. I want you to think about this for a minute. We, We sometimes divorce ourselves from the setting. A man in that culture, a man in that culture who couldn't walk was undignified, he was shamed. A man in that culture having to be carried by other men is even more undignified. He is a weakling. He is someone who is despised. And think about this. Carrying a man all day long and his bodily functions have to work, someone had to clean this man up all along the way. And folks, that takes compassion. That takes mercy. Faith in Jesus will drive people to be compassionate. Faith in Jesus will do that. Faith that Jesus can make this man well drove them to sacrifice things that, well, things that we would never sacrifice, like our time for his care, like our own comfort for his care. Faith in Jesus, secondly, made them confident. Faith in Jesus made them confident that if they could just get this man to Jesus, Jesus would do the rest. They believed, if, we can't fix him, we can't do anything for him other than carry him to Jesus. But once we get him to Jesus, he is willing and able to do what we cannot do. We know that because of the leper. 
He's willing to even touch defiled sinners. Pharisees won't do that. Notice the Pharisees in this text are sitting there. Just pay attention to how they react to this man as compared to Jesus when you go through this text. Thirdly, faith in Jesus made these men committed. They were committed to do whatever it took to get this man to Jesus. These are some committed men. Think about these attributes, compassion, confidence, commitment. Do these attributes shine in your life? Are you as committed? Are you as confident? Are you as compassionate as these four men? I think as Christians, as believers, we should be much more compassionate, much more confident, much more committed, because we don't know Jesus as just a healer. We know Jesus as a Savior, and we have experienced His saving forgiveness experientially, personally. So we should actually be more compassionate, more confident, more committed to do whatever it takes to get men and women to Jesus. We need to learn that lesson from these men. We need to learn a lesson from these men because these men were were absolutely amazing to me because these men were so compassionate and so confident and so committed that they would vandalize Peter's house. Isn't that amazing? They believed that the one in that house could do what no one else could do and they were willing to destroy this house to get this man to Jesus. Are we that committed? This was violent love. This is violent confidence. This is violent commitment that Jesus can do what no one else can do. We've got to get people to Jesus. In church, we get people to Jesus through the gospel, through preaching it, through teaching it, and through sharing our love for Jesus through it. Verse 4 says, these men were so confident and committed that they removed the roof. The literal translation here is they unroof the roof. They ekoruso. I think that's the word we use to derive the word excavated from. They actually scooped out the roof. The roof in that time period was a, a roof made of timbers laid across side to side, and then twigs and sticks laid on top of that, and then dirt laid on top of that, and then sometimes even tiles laid on top of that so that even more dirt would be piled up, and then grass would grow. It would be a nice, comfortable-looking little lawn on top of your house. But it would also be about 18 inches deep or thick. And Luke said that they had to remove the tiles. Here, Mark says they had to scoop. They had to unroof the roof. These men had to dig, and we don't often think about this story. We, we, we sometimes just make it a little kid's story, and we don't think about the reality. It'd be like somebody sitting up here this morning, so desperate to hear the gospel of Jesus that they would start chiseling away at the roof, hopefully not over my head, right? What, what, was, driving, what was driving these men to be so committed, so compassionate, so confident? It was the irresistible grace of God for that sinner they were carrying, And don't get mixed up in the story as we go through it. The paralysis and the forgiveness really have nothing to do with each other. He wasn't wasn't paralyzed necessarily because he had done something evil and needed forgiveness. No, the paralysis actually works to testify to the forgiveness. It's part of God's plan. But it was also part of God's plan that these men would, would express this kind of violent love for their friend. 
because they believed the one in that house could heal him. And if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, we should reflect these attributes. Do we love the lost as much as this man, these men love this friend? Do we have enough faith in Jesus that we would go to the lengths of tearing up someone's house to get people to the truth for him, for his honor, for his namesake? Are we willing, are we willing to do whatever it takes to take the gospel to those who are in need of Jesus? I, I try to picture the setting for a moment. And most of the time when a rabbi would teach, he's setting down. Jesus is sitting in this house teaching with love, with compassion, tenderly. And all of a sudden, they, he hears the scratch, 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 and then pound, 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 and then little bits of dirt begin to fall all around him. And he knows what's going on, but nobody else does. He knows what's going on in their hearts, not just on the roof. And this disruption began to get louder and louder until finally somebody stuck their fist through the, the roof. And there's a little hole, and I can imagine that little hole, and I can imagine the paralytic saying, roll me over, I want to hear Jesus. And I can imagine they rolled him over, and they begin to pound and tear more and more into the roof, and Jesus is sitting there in only the way Jesus could sit, with great comfort and confidence that this is part of his plan, and kept on teaching. As they pulled the roof apart, little by little, and he's waiting, because he knows that that immovable man is being moved now, not by his friends, but by the grace of God. Because on that roof, something was happening, church. That man was being regenerated through the hearing of Jesus' preaching. We will see evidence of that when Jesus makes his declaration in verse 5. But here, just look at the comparison in verse 4 between Jesus and the Pharisees in verse 6. In verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These, these Pharisees, these religious people of the day, they saw this act of faith, they saw this work, they saw this proclamation, and they saw it as blasphemy. They didn't see it as something to rejoice about. Jesus receives the sinner with joy. He doesn't rebuke the guys for tearing a hole in the roof. Look how he reacts. He reacts with forgiveness, not because they tore a hole in the roof, but because the man needed it internally. You understand, if if you know what Jesus preached when he went out to preach, he was preaching about the fact that when he came, when the, his authority was present on earth, he would be powerful and he would be merciful. And what happens when this man is lowered, he gets to display both, his authority and his mercy. Look at Luke 4. You can see how Jesus preached in Luke 4, 18. This would give you a sample of Jesus' kingdom preaching. Christ was preaching about the kingdom coming. And he says, when he preaches about the kingdom coming, he says, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to come with authority. There's going to be power to heal those who are needy. And there's going to be mercy for those who are in need of relationship, those who need to be reconciled to God. Look at 4.18. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Those are the spiritually impoverished, destitute due to sin. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who are captured by the sin's power. And he says and that he's been sent to, re, to recover the, bring the recovering of sight to the blind, those who are blinded by sin, to set at liberty those who are oppressed by sin, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's grace. Now, wouldn't it have been hypocritical of Jesus if he says, this is what I'm here to do. I'm talking about the kingdom to come. God's gonna, he's gonna give good news to the poor. He's gonna give sight to the blind. Set at liberty the oppressed. He's gonna bring in God's favor. But get this man off the roof. He's causing an interruption in my sermon. That's not what he does. That's what the Pharisees wanna do. But Jesus here, he puts both his kingdom authority and his mercy on display at this moment. And again, just just picture yourself as the paralytic because church, that's really who you are in this story. You're the immovable paralytic that has been drawn irresistibly by God's grace to Jesus through faith. But don't you know this man, he was waiting up there patiently as his friends began to dig through the roof and he's listening to Jesus little by little. He's leaning in. He's examining his own heart. And I'm sure from what I see in verse 5 that he is repenting. He's leaning. He's examining. He's repenting. And church, we should be doing that whenever we hear the word of God proclaimed also. When Jesus preaches When his word is declared, we should be leaning in, we should be examining our hearts, and we should be repenting of our sins. Let me just give you a pastoral aside here. This hour in the word should fuel your hearts and move you who were immovable. It should move you to go into the world and do what God has called you to do as his ambassadors. This hour in the word should be for you like it was for the paralyzed man, the most exciting event he had ever been to. When you are being addressed by God, you should lean in. You should examine yourself and you should rejoice because you have been graced by his forgiveness. Preaching is important to Jesus. He didn't even stop when they were digging a hole in the roof because God would use the preaching of his word to bring faith to the man who was paralyzed. That's good news for us when we go out and proclaim the truth. Everyone we talk to is paralyzed spiritually. They are dead in their sins and incapable of coming to God on their own, but we get to deliver Jesus to them. And we can watch and wait for God to do what needs to be done as God himself digs into their hearts and opens their eyes because he is using us to be his instruments like these friends were for this paralytic. And today, when you're being addressed, just just think about this. God God is dressing you and equipping you to go into the world and tell them not about a healer, but about your Savior. He's calling you to go out there and declare to them that there is a greater need they have other than what they perceive. The world only perceives that their, their needs are temporal. They, they only see the temporal need. They don't see the eternal. The, the world thinks that it's disease is the problem. You know, sickness is my problem. Depression is my problem. Bankruptcy is my problem. Loneliness is my problem. Drugs are my problem. No, those are only the symptoms of the problem. The problem is the heart. 
Sin is our biggest problem. And only Jesus can resolve that. Only faith in what Christ has done, His righteous life, His atoning death, His glorious resurrection, those are the only things that can transform a sinner and resolve their sin problem because Jesus lives their life for them. Jesus dies the death they deserve for them. Jesus rises from the grave for them to declare that they have been accepted by God through Him. They need to know this. Sin is the problem, and only Jesus can resolve it. Only Jesus can solve this problem. And we must be willing as a church to tell people that truth. And once we tell them that truth, they still have a lot of those problems. You know that, right? Those sub-problems. Because those sub-problems were caused by the sin problem. And so, in God's mercy, He doesn't just change them eternally, He changes them temporally also through the church, through your compassion, through your confidence in Jesus' ongoing sanctifying work, and through your commitment to walk with them whenever they go through this life and struggle and face trials and temptations. See, Jesus is authoritative and He's merciful. And His mercy is shown through the church. And again, for us to do this for us to reflect these men, these faithful men in this story, our faith in Jesus should be expressed through compassion for the paralyzed, those who are paralyzed by sin. It should be expressed through confidence in Jesus that He will care for them as He sanctifies them, as He brings them in. And our faith in Jesus should be expressed through our commitment to continually bring people to the gospel of Jesus Christ even if we have to tear through walls to do it. We should respond like these four men in Mark 2. We should respond by sharing the gospel with compassion. We should actually weep over the lost. Jesus did. Even those he didn't save, he weeped over. Because their sin was infectious. And it was destructive. And they were people He made in His image and one day would burn under His wrath. He had compassion on them. And we should too. We should have confidence in sharing the gospel, knowing that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that will change anyone. It changed you and it changed me. We should share the gospel with a commitment Not only to that person, but a commitment ultimately to Jesus to declare His greatness and authority and honor His name. See, if you're not sharing the gospel, it's because you're not willing to honor Jesus. Because preaching the gospel is about proclaiming His goodness, His authority, and His mercy. We must love people enough to honor Jesus and explain the gospel biblically. Let me me make sure I'm clear on this. Explain it biblically. There's none of this, ask Jesus into your heart, rub-a-dub-dub, come into my heart, Jesus. There's none of this, please allow Jesus to be your Lord. No, He is Lord. We must tell the truth about Jesus. He's King. He's Lord. We need to proclaim that He is Lord. He is deity. He is God in human flesh becoming our sacrifice. And now we should declare that with authority. And we should also declare to them He is a God who is full of tender mercy. 
He is drawing you here to hear this message about His authority and His power and your problem. Now, repent and believe in this Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your self-righteousness. Trust in what Jesus did or perish. There's no middle ground. Believe in Jesus or perish under the weight of your own sin and hell for eternity under God's wrath justly being poured out on you because you rebelled against your creator and you spit in his sacrifice's face. That truth will harden some and it will soften others. But those that he draws irresistibly will come. They'll come effectually because his grace is drawing them. Mark 2, 5 speaks about the irresistible draw that God expresses. The irresistible draws the immovable when, number three, grace is present. Jesus draws sinners by grace, by his favor. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. And here what we see is the irresistible Jesus drawing sinners by his grace, notice, through the faith of his friends. And look how Jesus responds to their faith. He responds with grace. He responds with grace to the paralytic, the one who was incapable of coming on his own. Faith in Jesus drove their actions, and it pleased Jesus when he saw it. It says Jesus saw their faith. Their actions displayed their trust in him. Ask yourself this this morning. Do your actions display your faith in Jesus? Do they display compassion and confidence and commitment? Jesus saw the faith, the trust that these men had, and he was pleased, it says. He was pleased, and he granted or graced them with an even greater healing than the one they desired. The physical need that the paralytic had drew these men to trust in Jesus to help the paralytic. But God's grace was actually what was at work here. God's grace was working in this to draw the paralytic not to a healing, but to salvation. What we need to make sure we notice in this text is that this passage is not about the greatness of the paralytic's friend's faith. It's not about the paralytic friend's faith. It's not about your faith. This text is ultimately about God. It's about God's authority and God's mercy that was displayed through Jesus' forgiveness of this sinner. This passage is ultimately about the authority and mercy of Jesus to forgive sinners who are incapable of saving themselves. It's about irresistible grace. God drawing you. Just think about your life. If you went back a few steps before you were converted and thought about all the things that fell into place, the problems, the issues, the struggles, and then all of a sudden, the gospel. Well, it wasn't an accident. God was at work in all of it, bringing you to a point you could not have came to on your own. You were immovable, but his irresistible grace drew the immovable. Verse 5, Jesus says something astounding to the paralytic. He said to the paralytic, My son, my technon, my child, 
This isn't the other Greek word for son, which is an adult son, which is the word huios. It's not that word. No, he's speaking in tender words here. My son. All right, Jesus isn't call, calling him son just because he's, he's, he's expressing some sort of colloquialism of the time. No, he's saying this personally because this man had now become a child of God on that roof. Jesus speaks to him with tender, comforting words, grace-filled words, knowing that he has been granted true saving faith to believe and repent and come to Christ on that roof. He is now a child of God. Something happened on that roof. Something happened miraculously on that roof. The one who wanted physical healing heard that there was something worse going on inside of him. The physical was secondary. The primary issue was his sin. And on that roof, he began to hear this Jesus, and God began to do a work. And it was manifest in the next few words when he calls him his son. And then he says in verse 5, Jesus declares with authority, your sins are forgiven. Past tense. It's already been done. There are no greater words that Jesus can utter to anyone. Your sins, your offenses, your defilement have been forgiven. You're clean. You're my son, he says. What a pleasant surprise for the man being lowered down. He comes down face to face with Jesus from the roof and he hears, he hears love incarnate say, oh, it's finished. You're forgiven. The paralytic had been moved. The immovable was moved internally by God's grace to see his need of salvation. His friends brought him here to find a healer, and God brought him here to find a savior. Verse 5 tells us that something had changed. He was lowered as the immovable, and as he was being lowered, he was moved internally. He was regenerated. Jesus confirmed it when he declares what only God himself can declare, displaying his authority and his mercy here, saying, your sins are forgiven. He says forgiven, which means to send away, to remit, forgive, give up. They're gone. They are taken away completely. Look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103.8. This is how authoritative and merciful our God is. That he can promise to remit our sins, to forgive our sins. And, and this promise is based on a reality. This promise is based on a substance, actually a substitute. Look what it says in 8 through 11 or 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions. 
He does this, church, because of Jesus' sacrifice. As far as the heavens are above the earth, vertically, and as far as the east is from the west, horizontally, and where those two meet, they meet at the cross of Christ. There is where forgiveness was granted. There is where the substance was granted to us to believe. We believe that Jesus, the God-man, came into this world and he hung on that cross because of our sins. He lived a perfectly righteous life so that not only do our sins get credited to him on the cross, but his righteousness is credited to us on that cross. And those who believe in that will repent of their sins. They will turn to Jesus and they will be given freedom from paralysis. They'll be set free from what bound them. They will be forgiven. They will be forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future. And that will cause them to be set free to go, as this man does in Mark, to go home. And for us to go home shouting the praises of our God because He has freely granted us forgiveness through His Son. Now, this granting of forgiveness is something that freely comes to us, but it is something that is not free. It was costly. Jesus grant us forgiveness at the cost of his own blood. He paid the price. He earned what we could never earn. He, he is the one who makes us movable by becoming immovable on the cross. He could have came down, but he chose not to. He was paralyzed by our sin on the cross as his father turned his back on him and said, damn you for sinners. And he received that willingly, paying our sin debt to give us his righteousness so that we could be set free to serve Jesus and tell others about his authority and his mercy and to do so accurately through the scriptures. We need to be committed to this. We need to be compassionate when we do this. And listen, when I'm talking about hell or you're talking about hell, we need to do it with a tear in our eye. People you know, people I know, will never experience the blessedness of forgiveness. They will serve under God's eternal judgment in hell for eternity under his wrath because they will not come to Jesus. But you know what? I don't know who they are. And all I know is I've got Jesus, and I can take him to them. And I can keep on taking him to them. And I can keep on doing it, even if I have to tear down wall after wall to get him to them. So that when they stand on that day, they can't say, and they won't say, no one ever told me about Jesus. No one ever brought him to me. I want to stand there that day saying, I have done everything I can do, Jesus, to bring people to you. You have to do all the rest. I just want to be faithful to be your ambassador. I can't save them, but I can show compassion. I can't save them, but I can be confident that you can save them. I can't save them, but I can actually be committed to bringing them the gospel that can save them. Church, that's what we're commissioned to do. There is no cop-out for us who believe in a sovereign God to save sinners. No, 
we are compelled even more so because God chose the means of their salvation to be the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His instruments of grace. So rejoice in that this morning. You and I reflect all those men in the story. We reflect the faithful friends when we carry out God's commands to draw people by His grace. And we represent the paralytic who could never come on his own apart from God's sovereign grace drawing us. See, irresistible grace is what opens our eyes to see the depth of our sin and the height of our Savior and His love. Irresistible grace can't be resisted because it reveals truth about us and truth about Jesus. That's why it's irresistible. Once you see that, if you see that, it's because God opened your eyes to see that. And God alone gets the glory for that. And once you see that, you can look forward to hearing what Jesus said to the paralytic. Son and daughter, your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we know. We don't guess. We don't hope like the world hopes. We Hope with assurance in your promises, in your son's work, that sins can be forgiven. We're so confident in this that we will go out and tell others and be committed to this and show compassion to the lost. I pray by your grace we would do that. We're confident that you see sins as something that need to be dealt with and you send your son to deal with it personally and then you commission your church to proclaim the good news personally until all your children are drawn and they come to you and they hear on that great day, your sins are forgiven. Jesus absorbed them. Jesus took them himself to set you free. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. We even enter in, God, into your presence by your grace. It's not by our works. So we want to praise you and thank you for that this morning. We thank you that you, through your irresistible grace, draw the immovable sinner to salvation and forgiveness through the authority and the mercy of Jesus. And I pray in his name. Amen.